I didn't expect to uh, put the finishing touches on this message uh, in the hospital room on the sixth floor, uh, and I also was not anticipating that I would be up a couple of times during the night last night to help administer pain meds, but here we are by the grace of God, and I hope that what I have to say is coherent <laughs> and that I come across uh, with some clarity. I suppose by now uh, the package deliveries have ceased at your house. I just kept imagining that Federal Express and UPS and Amazon must be colliding with each other <laughs> around the city. I mean, there's so much package deliveries going on. I know that we have quite a bit because uh, we have family out of the country who rely on Amazon to get things uh, to us. But I did read something the other day that uh, caused me to chuckle concerning the differences between the delivery systems. I don't know if you've seen this, but it describes uh, kind of their work ethic this way. Uh, UPS, your package is in your city on a truck driven by Mike. It will arrive at 6.27 p.m. today. FedEx, your package is coming. You'll get it when we get there. United States Postal Service, what package? <laughs> I have to admit, this is my favorite. Amazon, we are already inside your residence. Check the bathroom. <laughs> and then finally, Facebook. We know you were thinking about getting a toaster oven yesterday. Here are 20 ads for toaster ovens. <laughs> uh, it brings a lot of convenience, but I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's overwhelming at times. You know, this, is, this has been a strange week other than the episode with Priscilla because uh, I began the week intending and already preparing to bring a message from a different text. This doesn't happen to me very often. But come, in fact, I'd even communicated with Joel and with Danny to have songs that Along, were along another theme, and they're the songs we sang this morning. But then on Wednesday, I just had this unrest as I was thinking about it stepping into a new year that I should really bring a different message today, and I trust that I've followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, and I guess you all can assess that when I'm done. But I gave the title to this message, uh, The Ledger of Life, uh, because of all of the QuickBooks and the computer programs we have, but typically uh, the ledger was something in the field of accounting where people typically have columns where they're keeping track of, uh, of expenses, of income, of uh, assets, of liabilities, of profits, and of loss. And it really struck me that whenever we step into a new year, uh, a lot of us do a lot of recalibrating. Uh, we change some priorities, perhaps with our family budget and uh, other areas of life where we invest time and, and treasure. And this passage from Paul uh, just struck me as being one that would be good to be reminded of as we step into the new year and think about gains and losses and what is it that we should really be focusing on when we think about where we are achieving in life and areas where maybe we are not? And you already see the text. It's on the bulletin there by the little outline, and I'm going to read those verses to us now. It's in Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to read 7 through 14. Paul writes, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Before I draw some things from this passage for us, uh, pray with me, please. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that everything we need to know about life and godliness are contained within its pages. As we are here on the brink of a new year, I pray that uh, the Apostle Paul's teaching here, as I am communicating it to my brothers and sisters here, that your Holy Spirit would guide uh, my words, give us all receptive hearts and teachable hearts. And Lord, uh, where there needs to be a course correction for any of us, uh, I pray that your Spirit would impress that upon our hearts and our minds. Lord, it is my aim and desire that as always, the preaching and teaching of your word would edify your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we are not unlike Paul in the sense that when we give our lives to Jesus Christ and we repent and trust in him as Savior and Lord, that it necessarily brings about some pretty radical changes in us. And a lot of these radical changes have to do with putting aside some things and embracing new things. We renounce certain attitudes and habits of life. Uh, we forfeit uh, certain things that we used to treasure. We certainly exchange priorities in life when we think about what are the most important things that demands our affections and our energies. Our whole worldview is altered because the way a Christian sees the world is so dramatically different than how the unbeliever looks at the world. And so entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ 
does radically change the ledgers of our lives because the profit and loss columns get all turned around. In fact, in some cases, totally reversed. What we would have once considered as an asset now for us becomes an actual liability, especially when it comes to areas of materialism or pride or prestige, things that so much of the world zealously pursues. The Apostle Paul is teaching us here that what we lose or give up for the sake of Christ are merely temporary, temporal losses. And it's actually relinquishing those things that make possible the eternal gains uh, that come to us. And so in the verses I read, Paul really presents two contrasts. Uh, First, he contrasts the profit versus loss columns. And then secondly, he contrasts our focus on life being on the past or on the future. In verses 7 to 11, we see these profit and loss columns uh, compared. And what he says about the losses that he deems as temporal, uh, we'd have to take a quick look back just a few verses before, and for the sake of time, I decided not to take the entirety of this passage. But if you look at verses 7 and 8, he, excuse me, 7 and 8 is referring to the little bit of an autobiographical statement he had made just in the verses prior. And he was talking about his status in life before he became a Christian. And he says of himself, we are the true circumcision, we worship the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus. Although I myself might have had confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And so these were the things that he had built his life on, and he was passionately devoted to these things and took pride in them because he had a pedigree academically, religiously, ethnically, Roman citizenship in in every way. And yet, those are the very things that he says end up being put in the lost column for him when he came to know uh, Jesus Christ. And then he gives a very severe uh, comparison about the things of his past life. What does he say? He sees them as the New American Standard politely says, he counts those things as rubbish. But anybody who wants to grab a, a Greek dictionary and look up the word that Paul used there in that text, skubala, the Greek word, was used in two ways. One, it described the scraps that were often thrown to the dogs who were hanging around the garbage heap. But in the medical arena, scubala referred to excrement. And so he is actually saying that all these achievements and attainments of his life prior to Christ, he sees now as dung, as the King James Version puts it. Why, why the severe comparison? 
Well, when we think of the things that we treasure, that we prize, thinking about your family inheritance, it just popped into my mind. I've got to be careful about things that pop into my mind, but um, <clears throat> especially when I'm preaching. But uh, somebody was calling in to, uh, I forget the guy's name, he's the guru in finances on radio, Dave, Ram Dave Ramsey. And um, this man called in, uh, was getting some advice because this guy had won a lottery in whatever state he lives in. And apparently it was millions and millions of dollars. And he said, you know, I'm just really concerned. I don't want my kids to just grow up and be waiters. And Dave Ramsey kind of chuckled, and he says, I mean, waiting on me to die so they can get the millions. But um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, certainly there's, you know, material possessions, uh, family inheritance. There's one's pedigree, one's academic degrees, awards, salaries, bonuses, stock, mutual funds, uh, other attainments and honors in life. And it's not that it's bad or evil to receive those things, but of course, as we all know, the issue is, is what role do they play in our own heart and mind when it comes to the priorities and focus of life? But if you think of all those things I just suggested as examples, can you imagine if you could piling them all into the back of your car and going out to the city dump and putting them there? Now, while I think he's using hyperbole uh, for dramatic effect, and it does catch one's uh, attention, I think that it does behoove us to ask ourselves the question and to cyclically ask ourselves the question from time to time, what are the things that really grip my heart? What are the things that I really really aspire to do and accomplish, and to what end? J.I. Packer, who wrote a book that's 50 years ago it came out, it has sold over one million copies, which is really remarkable for a, a Christian book. But it's a book called Knowing God. I hope all of you have read it. If you hadn't, you, you should get it. Uh, but on this very passage in that Knowing God book, J.I. Packer uh, says this, when Paul says he counts the things he lost rubbish, or King James Version dung, he means not merely that he does not think of them as having any value, but also that he does not live with them constantly in his mind. What normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? And that, that almost seemed a little earthy for J.I. Packer to me, but it was got my attention, uh, certainly, where I wouldn't have shared it with you. But, but I ask again, why such the harsh comparison? And it's because if we're not careful with these things in life that have all the glitter and attractiveness for us, then we are susceptible to what can be liabilities. To, they will keep us from truly getting a hold of how the Lord wants us to look at life, to relate to Him, and to use the years that He gives us. One of the most quotable missionaries of all time 
when it comes to laying your very life on the line for the sake of Christ, of course, is Jim Elliott, whose famous line, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But really, what Paul is saying here, and I'm sure that he had received the teaching of Jesus in this regard, uh, Jesus says it so powerfully and so simply when Jesus states it this way in Matthew 16. Jesus asks, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so that's the contrast that, that Paul presents. The gains he mentions, and he really mentions five, he says that the focus rooted in Christ brings about gains and assets that have eternal value. And we'll just move through them one after the other. Uh, each one merits a sermon, but for our purposes today, uh, in verse 8, he says, more than that, I count all these things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Knowing Jesus Christ. It's not just knowing about Christ. He's referring to what should be the experience of every follower of Christ, that we personally know Him and are intimately related to Him. To know Christ uh, or to gain Christ are two ways of expressing uh, the same reality. And for Paul, uh, this was very personal. When he was writing to the Galatians, he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It was very personal for Paul, and I trust that if you know Jesus, it's very personal for you and me as well. But for him to say the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, at the time he's writing this, he's already known the Lord for 30 years. And just like in marriage, a husband and wife profess their love to one another, become engaged, get married, but that love just doesn't stay stagnant. The knowledge of each other does not stay stagnant, or it shouldn't in a healthy marriage. The longer you live together, the more that love grows, the more you live with your spouse, the better and better you get to know them in the most intimate of ways. And I've been experiencing that for 52 and a half years at this point. In verse 9, another eternal gain that he mentions is having been found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of of faith. 
Like most devout Jews, before his Damascus Road encounter with Jesus, Paul was zealously pursuing the righteousness as it was taught from the Old Testament amongst the Jewish leaders. And of course, we know that the law encourages a righteousness that is based upon works. And unfortunately for so many of the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day, it was a works righteousness that often evolved into a self-righteousness. And when we speak of being righteous, it's simply to remind you means that we are standing in a right standing before God. Our sin is not impeding our relationship with Him when we are made righteous in relationship to Him. When we believe on Jesus, we place our faith in Him, God bestows the righteousness of Christ on us. One of the theological labels for this is called imputation. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. Because, you see, apart from Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. And when we are joined to Christ and come into a relationship with Him through a spiritual rebirth, then the righteousness of Christ is put into our bankrupt account and it's credited to us. He applies that righteousness to our account. When Paul was writing to the Romans, he says in Romans 4, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So it's not anything that we've earned. This is something that God graciously bestows on us. He goes on next to mention uh, the power of Christ. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection... power that, the very power that brought Christ out of the tomb is the very power of God that is also unleashed in our lives at the moment we become born again. In Ephesians 1, he, Paul states it this way, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The reason there is no place for pride or boasting for the Christian is because the righteousness is not of our making and the power is not of our doing. These are things that are granted to us by virtue of our relationship to Christ. And then the next thing might cause one to pause. Another eternal gain that he sees in the ledger column is that he shares in the sufferings of Christ. Suffering is a gain? Yes, it is. In fact, back in 
verse 29 of chapter 1 of this same letter of Philippians, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. I'm adding other comments by Paul here, obviously, along the way, but in Romans 8, he says about this suffering, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. Paul was not running around trying to get people to punch his martyr card, but he was very keenly aware of the fact that there can be and often is a cost of suffering because you are a Christian. Now, the Bible addresses all kinds of sufferings, but it's not just the suffering of recovering from hip replacement. The suffering he's talking about here is the suffering that we encounter because of our stand for Christ. And Paul says it's not a burden, it's a privilege. Jesus warned us of this very thing, did He not? He said to the disciples in John 15, the world hates you. And then He goes on to say, the world hates you, and before you, the world hated me. So we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, Over in Matthew 24, Jesus says, then they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now, I understand that in our American context, the Christian church has not nearly experienced the kind of suffering for being a Christian that have existed historically and in other places of the world. But we even see the rumblings of that, do we not? The whole COVID thing Pastors taken to jail in Canada, down in California, the the MacArthur Church thing. And um, I mean, we see that society and the world is pushing back against Christians. And Jesus says that the world will hate you because of me. We don't welcome that, but we acknowledge that God uses it for a very good purpose and that it's something that strengthens us as we march towards eternity. It's part of being conformed to the image of Christ. You know, I thought that the hostility of the gospel was so blatantly on display. When COVID was raging at its worst in New York City, Franklin Graham and the Samaritan's Purse brought in one of those mobile medical hospitals, set it up in Central Park, the tents, no charge, and they treated anybody and everybody who was in need of medical treatment with COVID. But if you recall what happened, they had to take the tents down and leave because somebody complained, the LGBTQ people, complained to the mayor that the biblical beliefs of this organization that they shouldn't be allowed in Central Park. So can you imagine people lining up to get medical care, no, close down the tents and leave and let these people be not taken care of simply because of identification with the teaching of the Bible, and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, the other eternal gain that we all look forward to, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. I mean, when it comes to facing one's death, is there a more blessed assurance than those words I just read? Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also to be with Him. That's 2 Corinthians 4.14. Now, the New American Standard, uh, Paul says, in order that I may attain, um, the language is not really suggesting that somehow he has some doubt about it happening. In fact, that's why um, some other translations help to understand the sense in which he means it. For example, the Christian Standard Bible, I will somehow reach the resurrection or so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection. And what most Bible students uh, believe he has in mind is that Paul was well aware that it was possible Jesus would come back during his lifetime and he'd immediately be with the Lord. Or if he lives life and then just dies on earth, he'll still be with the Lord, but it's one way or another he will experience the resurrection and be with the Lord face to face. And so, he mentions all these marvelous promises that should help us to keep perspective of what we really see as the assets and liabilities in our lives. What are the gains? What are the losses? And I'm, I'm saying to you, my friends, we have to be attentive to this in an ongoing way because it is so easy for some of the things that we enjoy in this life, and God's not opposed to us enjoying uh, comforts and material possessions, but we've got to be careful about where our affections are really leaning, and when push comes to shove, what is the most important thing to us? <clears throat> is it the Lord Jesus Christ, His purposes for us, glorifying Him, taking as many people to heaven with us as we possibly can, even denying ourselves certain things so that we have resources for other purposes, we should constantly be evaluating those things. You know, um, <clears throat> there's been other instances in my life, but one that came to my mind when I was preparing this message was a real turning point in my life and my ministry. Uh, we had been here in Gainesville when I was finishing college and um, <clears throat> under Mike Braun's ministry, and then we went off to seminary, and then I returned after graduation in seminary, and I was on staff with Mike for seven years as an associate pastor. And <clears throat> it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I was leading a Bible study in Tampa to help them. I was commuting back and forth from Gainesville to help them uh, establish a church, and I was going to help them find a pastor. Well, I was taken off guard when the group of 17 asked if I would come be their pastor full-time and leave Gainesville. Well, this really was a difficult decision for me. I struggled with this decision. And the reason why, I, there were several reasons why I was struggling. One, I really enjoyed the ministry here in Gainesville with Mike. Things were going wonderfully well. We had many dear friends here in the church. I have loved the city of Gainesville ever since I stepped foot here. I came up from Miami to be a student. I was here the third day and thought, I never want to go back to Miami. Um, now, of course, if the Lord leads you, you have to do it, but thank goodness he didn't. <laughs> 
Um, And we had just bought a house that I loved this house. It was a dream house to me. And uh, we had bought one smaller home. And um, I don't mind giving you the numbers. It's so far back. Um, We bought the house in 1977 for $30,000. Two years later, I sold it for $48,000. So we took that $18,000 and put it on our dream house. Two-story Cape Cod house, wood floors. I mean, I just, I loved this house. I loved it too much, actually. And we'd only been in the house uh, for three years. And so I loved our house. I loved, I just loved everything about our life. And, And it was keeping me from really considering accepting a call to go pastor this church in Tampa. And I'm not proud of this, but I'm just being transparent with you. And so I struggled with it and struggled with it. And to make a long story short, Dr. Walt Kaiser had come down to Gainesville. We had invited him to come speak. I took him out to breakfast on the way to the airport. And he looked at me and said, Richard, you're too young to be coasting. And you are coasting being here with Mike Braun. You need to be out on your own in the pulpit every Sunday. Yeah, and he was one of my favorite professors, and I respect him. He's still living. He's like 86 or something. But anyway, um, the Lord used that to kind of really pierce my heart, you know, about, okay, what are my priorities? I mean, has God called me to live in a, a dream house, or has he called me to preach the gospel and, you know, edify his church? And so, obviously, we made the right, you know, decision. And so, we resigned and moved down there. It was still, I was still a little shaky. I was insecure. I thought, man, what if I get down there and these people don't think I teach so great? You know, what if they don't grow enough to pay me a salary? You know, I started wondering about all this, you know, security and all the rest of it. And, um, but the Lord blessed. But that was, I mean, the Lord was taking me to school through that situation. Where are my true affections? Am I prepared to, at what level, sacrifice or forfeit something for that which is much greater? Uh, Certainly something that was more eternal in value than a Cape Cod house with cedar shingle walls, Wedgwood blue with white (laughs) shutters and white columns. Of all the houses we've ever lived in, we've lived in bigger houses than that. That was uh, still my favorite. Um, The other contrast um, in verses 12 to 14, and I'm so glad he mentions this as we're on the threshold of a new year, the future versus the past focus of life. And that means that as the Lord is transforming us, retooling our minds and our hearts concerning, again, the real profits and losses of life and having a change of perspective. And he cites two areas of life that we should be forgetting. He says, forgetting what is behind. And I think the two areas that should be considered is one, achievements, especially in light of his pedigree he had given about himself in the earlier verses. And we need to be careful that we think we've ever arrived because we've never arrived until we're face-to-face with Jesus in heaven. And so we cannot coast on our past accomplishments, no matter how good they are, and we cannot rest on our laurels. Because the Christian life is a life of progressing. It's supposed to be a life of maturing. That's why we find terminology like 
uh, growing in Christ. He mentions here, as many have become perfect, the word there is really the word for maturity. The Christian life is a process moving toward completion, and we cannot cease moving forward until all is complete. So we don't want to be looking behind on what we've already accomplished to somehow think, well, I'm going to take it easy. It's been rightly commented on in books and by preachers for years, and that is you should never get to the point as a Christian where you retire. It's fine to retire from your occupation, but we should never retire from serving Christ, serving His people, pressing on, loving people, loving God. Now, certainly circumstances in life as we grow older start to inhibit our ability to do some of those things. But nonetheless, we should keep uh, pressing on. I'll say more about that in a moment. But I think there's something else we need to forget that lies behind that can trip us up. And that is when we start to dwell on the hurts or the mistakes or the sins that we have committed or encountered in the past. As Paul said in his autobiographical little section there that I quickly read to you, he had a lot to be ashamed of, a lot to be ashamed of, getting the documentation to travel to other cities to arrest Christians and have them thrown in jail. I mean, he was a persecutor of the church. And certainly, all of us uh, deal with times where we have sins of commission, things that we think or do that are displeasing to God, and some of them, as we think back, make us wince as we're uh, ashamed of it. Forget does not mean that we fail to remember it, because we can recall the bad things that we've done. When I think of my life before Christ, I still, you know, I'm regretful, but it's not as painful because I have basked in the grace of God all of these decades. But the fact I was breaking into houses and stealing other people's money, I mean, what a terrible thing to do. And talk about feeling unworthy, but... When Jesus says He forgives, He he forgives completely. And so, I think a lot of Christians struggle with feeling so bad about a sin they may have committed in the past that you really need to forget that, leave that behind, and focus on pressing ahead. So, whether it's a divorce or sexual promiscuity or an abortion or some kind of physical and emotional abuse in your family financial failure, bankruptcy, I mean, whatever things have just been things that can cause you to still walk with a limp when you shouldn't be walking with a limp because Christ has forgiven that. And He's wiped the slate clean because we're told if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And along with that promise is a clear conscience. I think many of us love Proverbs 24, 16, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. 
a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Now, we know it doesn't mean on time eight you don't. Seven is a, a complete perfect number that it, it should continue on. But what he does tell us, the contrast is forgetting what lies behind, but then reaching forward to what is ahead. And ultimately, what is ahead is heaven. But he gives a, really an athletic picture here. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That, that little phrase, reaching forward, is the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word appears. So whenever there's one of those kind of isolated words, Bible students always kind of really lock in on that. What is this word that's so unusual? And it's actually a word, and I like the ESV translation better than the reaching of the New American Standard. It says straining. The idea is the guy who's running the foot race. And I remember in the movie Chariots of Fire that the Jewish athlete lost a race because he kind of kept looking aside rather than putting his arms back. You know, they stick out their chest and get as much of their body out in front and strained across that finish line first. And that's the concept Paul has in mind here when he says that he is reaching forward to what lies ahead. And as we are reaching forward, and if we're running the race, it's not what we think, it's not what the spectators think, it's what the judge of the race thinks that counts. Our time is elapsing. <clears throat> well, the Super Bowl's coming up, and I recently read an account of a, a Super Bowl hero who really has lived out these things that Paul is talking about. And uh, I want to conclude by sharing it with you. His name is Casey Crawford, and he was in Super Bowl 37 uh, back in 2003 and was one of the stars uh, of that uh, victory uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But <clears throat> he made a decision uh, that surprised uh, a lot of people because he had only been playing three years when he won the third Super Bowl in his third year, and he was only 26, and he decided to quit NFL football. And by his own admission, it was a decision that some people didn't understand, and they asked me, how can I leave the NFL, and why I would ever just want to voluntarily retire without an injury or something forcing him to? And he went on to say that playing football, and I want to quote him here exactly, and I, I think this really does illustrate the principle Playing football in the NFL was one of the greatest experiences in my life. I absolutely loved it. God used it in really significant ways to give me a platform to share the light of Christ out in the community and with fans. My last year was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We were really blessed to play in the Super Bowl that year, which was an unbelievable experience. The moment that sticks out in my mind is standing on the 50-yard line, getting to hold up the Lombardi Trophy, with head coach John Gruden. I started thinking about this greatest achievement in sports, the highest honor in the game. I played where we were the best team in the world, 
and what we did, and it satisfied for less than 24 hours. You think people dedicate their lives to this stuff, and you're watching fans and people that had gotten so thrilled and so engaged, and it was a fairly light piece of metal, the Lombardi Trophy that I'm holding up, and it was just a moment in time and then passed. It struck me that it's such a shame that so many people miss the eternal importance of a relationship with Christ and all the lasting joy that comes from that. It doesn't need to be replenished each day with a new experience because it's an ongoing relationship that's eternal rather than just a momentary experience that fades pretty quickly and has to be duplicated over and over and over. And then the last thing I'll pass on to you, when the interviewer was asking him, so you're at the Super Bowl playing with the Bucks, and then the offseason hits and you say, all right, that's it, I'm done? And his response was, it was something my wife Michelle and I prayerfully considered. I loved football and loved playing, but it was never something that was defining of who I was, and I'm really thankful that I have a mom and dad who grounded me in a faith and hope in Christ at a young age. That was always much more defining of my person than what I did professionally. And so, he's not perfect, but I think he's a guy who's got it right. I think he gets it, and I hope we all get it. Uh, as he admitted, he loved playing football, but he realized that there were some other things in life that were, you know, much more important. I hope this has uh, given you some food for thought here between now and 2024 and beyond. I'd like to pray again. Please pray with me. Father, I'm the first to acknowledge that these principles, as beautiful and weighty as they are, they're much easier said than done, than lived out. And Lord, your purpose and plan for each of us uh, is unique to what your calling is on our own individual life. But I pray that we would always be seeking to know what your will is for our life and how we live it, where we work, where we play, our families, that all of it would come under the umbrella that Jesus Christ is my master and Lord and that we want to do what he would have us to do. Help us to guard our affections. Help us with the Apostle Paul to continue to press on for the ultimate victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.